Hello, this is UU Todd Phillips, the golden voice of the Great Southwest, and you are in fact listening to Loafer's Glory, the Hobo Jungle of the Mind. This is me, you Utah Phillips here. That was the wonderful music of the Boersdorfs. I, I never hesitate to mention their name because they're the, some of the finest folk musicians in North America. That little excerpt you heard at the beginning that sounded so anomalous with their music is uh, with My Wild Irish Rose, a very, very early recording by the great John McCormick. That's one of those old 78s I have in my collection that has only one side to them, probably made around 1910 or so. Uh, John McCormick, well now, this is not, I don't know exactly how this program is going to go. It's music that I dearly, dearly love, uh, but that I've been sometimes reluctant to play because there's not very many people that like it. It's concert music, music that when I'm alone, when I'm home from traveling, uh, when I want my solitude, music that I listen to. Uh, folks sometimes ask me, what do you listen to when you're at home? Do you listen to folk music? Do you, do you listen to jazz? What? Well, no, I listen to concert music. Opera singers who took to the concert stage more than 50, 50 to 100 years ago, and I've collected those records from uh, junk stores and secondhand stores. I sort of, it, it kind of, well, let's start, this is a good place to start. I was over in Korea where I was a soldier. And uh, it was a little town down there by a town called Bang Ma. I was in the market, a blanket spread out on the ground with junk piled on it, and there was a little square box with rounded corners about a foot square. And and I bought it. Because when you opened it up, uh, the lid hinged up, there were three arms that swung out uh, that would hold a record, hold a platter. Um, and then there was a, in a clip there was a tone arm that you pulled out and plugged into the socket, and there was a crank and another little clip that you plugged into the side so you could crank it and, and then put the tone arm down on the record, and then the other half, the, the top, the lid, acted as the sound chamber, you know, uh, the speaker. And it was the sort of thing that, uh, that you'd tear, carry into combat. It was called a Mickey phone. It was Japanese, uh, left over from the Japanese occupation of Korea. And, and I bought that. But also there was a stack of records, old 78s, with uh, Japanese labels, so I didn't know what was on them, you see. I took it back to, uh, to the hooch, and much to the awe, shock, and chagrin of my hooch mates, I swung those arms out, put that, that platter down, unidentified, and wouldn't you know, this is exactly what I heard. Oh, my God. 
I don't know exactly what happened to him. I think Petey is a clown who has his heart broken. Um, that was the, the 1902 recording of Enrico Caruso, and that's a true story. That's when I turned that on in our hooch with that Mickey phone, that's exactly what came out of it. I guess uh, some Japanese soldier had been a, an opera buff. My old neighborhood in Cleveland, I guess that's the first place that I heard uh, concert music. Uh, after dinner, uh, when the weather was good, uh, boys, uh, the Orville Street gutter rats, would get out and run the alleys and, um, and catch fireflies in a, sort of an open field behind our house. The uh, record players, the old Victrolas, the hand crank ones, when the electric machines were brought in um, uh, before I was born, uh, the old hand crank machines were hauled out onto the, onto the screened porches, and sometimes electric machines too, but... And the people, and this was a, a Yiddish-speaking Jewish neighborhood. This is when my stepfather moved us when I was five years old. Uh, and, and they'd sit out on the screen porches with the, I remember, I remember one family with a big yellow uh, bug light hanging from the ceiling uh, uh, that you could see for blocks and blocks. Uh, would sit out there and play these old records, and they would echo through the night while we were out uh, harvesting fireflies in a in a jar so that hopefully we could uh, have enough of them in there so we could read a funny book uh, late at night under the covers when we were made to go to bed. Well, rediscovered one of those songs I first heard in my old neighborhood. It was said that Jan Pierce had the the greatest voice of the 20th century. That judgment, however, was arrived at in the middle of the 20th century. I'm not sure what's happened since. Um, the fine old 78 finally rediscovered uh, Jan Pierce and the Bluebird of Happiness. 
beggar man and the mighty king are only different in name, for they are greeted just the same by fate. Today a smile and tomorrow a tear will never show what in store. So learn your lesson before it is too Life of food and the life of fear. A blinding torrent of rain and a brilliant burst of sun. A biting, tearing pain and bubbling, sparkling fun. And no matter what you have, don't envy those you meet. It's all the same. It's in the game, the bitter and the sweet. And if things don't look so cheerful. Just show a little fight. For every bit of darkness, there's a little bit of light. For every bit of hatred, there's a little bit of love. For every cloudy morning, there's a midnight moon above. Oh,
so remember this Life is no abyss Somewhere there's a Jan Pierce, Bluebird of Happiness. Now, why is it that that music moves me so much? Why is it that these opera singers on the concert stage move me? I remember as a boy listening to Jan Pierce sing uh, Yiddish folk songs in Yiddish with a, with a full orchestra. Um, I don't know. It's not nostalgia. I think it's authentically good music. Was it Abby Hoffman said nostalgia is another form of depression? And I don't feel depressed about this music at all. It's just music that I that I have a, a deep affection, a deep love for. I don't like to go back to Salt Lake City much anymore because the place has sort of been rebuilt from the ground up and all of my old haunts are now fern bars and garden restaurants all along West Temple. Why, there used to be the Del Rio and the Havana Club, the old Porters and Waiters Club. The, it was uh, run by the only black union in the United States. Their uh, porters and waiters off of the railroad had their own club. Second-hand stores all down West Temple there. And I, I'd go in there, and I furnished a whole house for almost nothing out of those second-hand stores. That's where I found my first, my, my second hand crank Victrola. It was a stand-up cabinet model RCA um, with a real good stylus, and it had a, a, a volume control. Uh, no, pardon, it didn't have the volume control. It had the speed control because Pathé Frères made uh, a 78 that ran a little bit slower. And um, I thought a little armature down inside to control that. Uh, and it had an automatic cutoff. Uh, I loved that machine. I finally had to sell it because I ran out of money, but I collected a whole lot of records in those junk stores. As I was sorting through stacks and stacks of them, and oh yes, I found uh, I found old recordings of the, the U.S. troops embarking for Europe during the First World War, and then the celebration on their return. All of which I abandoned in Salt Lake when I abandoned Salt Lake. But sorting through those records, the most that I found, and virtually every other record, was John McCormick. John McCormick, as I when I left Utah, and as I traveled, if I was visiting with older people, if I was staying with old people. They all knew the music of John McCormick. Many of them had grown up with it, um, had possessed the records, or their parents had possessed the records. John McCormick, well, he was trained in mathematics. He was to, uh, mathematics and astronomy was sciences. That's what he was supposed to go to school for. He was born in Athlone, Ireland in 1884, but he wanted to pursue a, a musical career. So May 14th, I guess, 1903, he entered the Irish National Music Festival, and he won. And that meant that he could, in 1904, sail for America with the uh, Dublin Choir to sing at the St. Louis Exposition, and that's what started him off on this global career that lasted up until around 1940. Now, look, I, 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 like I had to give up my hand-crank machine. Somewhere out there, one of you has got a good hand-crank Victrola. I hope it's an RCA. A Columbia will do. I don't necessarily need the cabinet down underneath, although it will be convenient. It's a lot easier to use. If you've got one at a fair price, 
let me know, okay? Just get hold of me, and, and uh, we'll see how if I can afford it and, and get it shipped out here, because I'd love to hear. I've got 150 mint condition John McCormick 78s going all the way back to 1909. I said that John McCormick entered the Irish National Music Festival and won. Well, the song that he won with is called The Snowy-Breasted Pearl. Let's listen to that now. John McCormick, The Snowy-Breasted Pearl. Oh, my love, the war. 
Thrush of Aaron, the great John McCormick. I should mention uh, that John McCormick had an operatic career and recorded a number of operatic pieces, but he gave up the opera stage because he deemed himself to be a poor actor, a bad actor. And in order to do opera, he had to be a, a reasonably good actor. So that's why he took to the concert stage. I had a mentor in New York City when I first started playing in the East. He lived in a little one-room garret over a, uh, an Hispanic record store named Peter Wartzman. Peter Wartzman was a, was a good writer uh, and, and a scholar, uh, considerably younger than, than I was, but still a mentor. He's the one who steered me toward the, the great um, uh, uh, Yiddish short story writers, uh, Isaac Bashevis Singer um, and, and so many others. Uh, it's like Bobble. I'd sleep on the floor in his apartment, but he, what, he would, what he would play before he went to bed were these old records of Joseph Schmidt. And I fell in love with that again. It, again, it was a, a concert singer. Joseph Schmidt, during the late 1920s and the 1930s, refor- recorded a full catalog of operatic music, but only on the radio. He was the first great radio star. This was Deutsche Grammophone in Germany. Um, and that's because he was less than five feet tall, so he couldn't appear on the stage. That meant that he had to confine himself to the concert stage and then to the uh, to the radio opera. Joseph Schmidt had quite a long career. Uh, he was touring the United States, touring Mexico, and he came back to Germany and found out that he um, his funds had been impounded. This is what the Nazis had long since taken over. His funds had been impounded, and... Um, he had lived in exile in, in Brussels. That's because he was the son of a Bavarian rabbi. He was Jewish. Well, of course, Brussels then fell to the Nazis, and he very dangerously smuggled himself across France to Switzerland, where he was put in a displaced persons camp, a Jewish displaced persons camp. It was there in about 1942 that he contracted pneumonia and um, passed away at the age of 38. He wrote letters to his old friend, Gigli, down in, uh, to, uh, down in Italy, a great lyric tenor, appealing for uh, help to get him out of his situation. But Gigli's patron was Benito Mussolini, um, the fascist dictator, and so Gigli never replied. I played the Girton Festival in Switzerland some years ago, up there in Bern. I found out where Joseph Schmidt was buried, and I went down there, and I, and I put flowers on the grave. It's a thank you for the, the hours of great music he had given me uh, from the concert stage. And, uh, and I, this is where I made this poem for him. It's a letter, uh, a supposed letter from uh, Joseph Schmidt to uh, Beniamino Gigli. Dear Beniamino, here in this camp... I am one of several thousand bystanders overwhelmed by our times. I am ill and can no longer sing. How can I ask you to save my life when you will not acknowledge my existence? My old friend, 
Isn't the music enough? Why can we not simply become two old men sunning by the wall, silent, dreaming of how well we once filled the silence? Joseph Schmidt. Joseph Schmidt, from one of his movies, he made a number of movies in Germany. Um, he was a very fine-looking man. So, of course, in the movies, he, he used to they used to stand him on a box, um, which, of course, wasn't filmed. The same, same way they did with Alan Ladd. I don't know if you knew that or not, but there's your trivia for the day. Joseph Schmidt moves me very deeply. 
A newfound treasure uh, just lately, a Peter Dawson. Peter Dawson is a baritone. He was born in 1882 in Adelaide, Australia. He was down under, trained operatically, even though his father, who was a retired sea captain, had um, opened a hardware store selling up plumbing equipment there in, in Adelaide. Well, he decided he was going to go into opera anyway. And he uh, he went to to uh, London. His uncle had a, a steamship line, so he caught a, a lift on a freighter, went to London, starved there, uh, couldn't get any um, couldn't get any money, uh, couldn't get any training doing what he was doing, and um, and finally uh, he 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 uh, wrote and said he wanted to come back to Australia. Uh, wanted, no, he said he wanted some money. Uh, in order to support him there in London, and his uh, father wrote back and said, uh, come back home and tend to your plumbing. Well, what happened was he got an uh, offer for an audition from Edison Bell. That's when they were making uh, cylinders. But he didn't have enough money. He had married by then a woman named Nan, didn't have enough money to, for car fare to go to the audition. But his wife, who was playing in pantomime um, at a local theater, had used pennies to weight her dress to give it balance. So they cut open the seams and found the pennies and was able to send him over to Edison Bell for the audition. And that began another 50-year-long career as a baritone concert singer. He eschewed the operatic stage for financial reasons, said you, it's too much work for too little money. And he was doing really, really well on the, on the concert stage. Uh, well, at one, one time, there are so many stories about uh, Dawson. One time he was practicing jujitsu backstage with one of the stage crew, and he threw his opponent onto the middle of the stage right, right during somebody else's performance, and he got himself uh, fired. Um, the, all, all his music was recorded acoustically. He, he was recording a song once called The Sinking of a Troop Ship, and the thunder machine collapsed on him because they hit it too hard, and that caused the whole light rack to collapse on him too. But he, uh, he lived. Um, he's quoted as saying uh, why he went on the concert stage. I am a man of the people, and what gifts I am fortunate enough to possess, I want to give back the people. Well, let's listen to one of his old recordings, a song written by Rudyard Kipling, Rolling Down to Rio, Peter Dawson. I've never sailed the Amazon, I've never reached that dear, but the Don and the Magdalena, they can go there where they will. Ah, From Southampton, great steamers, white and gold, go rolling down to Rio, roll down, roll down to Rio, and I'd like to roll to Rio some day before I'm old, to roll. I'd like to roll to Rio some day before I'm. Yet an armadillo Billowing in his armor And I suppose I never will Ah, 
Kenny Hall, of course, one of my favorite musicians down there in Fresno, California. I assume he's still in Fresno. I can't imagine Fresno without Kenny Hall. Paul Robeson, well, he was an opera singer, of course, among many other things. He left the opera stage, well, because there are so few roles for black opera singers. He was able to do Otello, uh, and probably as well as it can possibly be done, but also because of racism. Um, It was very, very difficult for a a black musician who wasn't doing uh, minstrel work, uh, a black opera singer or concert singer, to be on the stage at all. Besides which, Paul Robeson had committed his entire life, his entire career, to the fight against racism, to the fight against classism, you see, to the point where he was blacklisted during the McCarthy times in the late 40s and early 50s, prevented from working. His passport was taken from him by the State Department because he had had the audacity to go and sing opera or sing concert work in, uh, in uh, the Soviet Union. In order to stay alive, uh, Paul Robeson during the 1930s made a few movies. They're very rare movies, and none of them are particularly good. Uh, there was one of them called Saunders of the River, where Paul Robeson, is a, these take place in Africa. And he's the African guide, Paul Robeson is, and he's told by the director that at the campfire, around the fire at night, he's to sing um, American Negro spirituals. Fairly alienating. Well, for better or worse, here's one of, I have an old 78 of Paul Robeson singing a song from Saunders of the River. Let's listen to the canoe song. Ayoko, 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 ayoko
Saunders of the River. Let's reach way back now. Henry Russell, uh, operatically trained, uh, became a concert singer. He was born in 1812 in England. Uh, when he was eight years old, he sang with a children's opera in London, studied opera in Italy with Rossini. Living in abject poverty, uh, which is what Dawson tried to avoid, immigrated to Canada, migrated to the United States, wound up as the organist at a, at a cathedral in Rochester, New York, where he began to write what were called descriptive songs. That began a concert career which took him, at, in those days, the 1840s, to frontier towns like uh, St. Louis and Missouri. And that concert uh, career lasted him for the next 60 years. He finally died in 1901. These were the old concert halls. Well, we have one here in Nevada City, the uh, the Nevada Theater, the old Mark Twain Theater. Uh, Clifford Jackson, a fine opera singer and a baritone himself, set about to recreate a Henry Russell performance, which he then toured all over the country in those old concert halls, the ones that were still standing. Let's listen to Clifford Jackson recreate Henry Russell and a true piece of melodrama. The ship on fire.
waves arose in foam at the voice of the blast, and heavily labored on the gale-beaten ship like a stout-hearted swimmer, the spray at his lip. And dark was the sky o'er the mariner's path, except when the lightning As she followed the foam, for fond hearts within her were dreaming of home. The young mother pressed her fond babe to her breast and sang a sweet song as she rocked it to rest. And the husband sat cheerily down by her side and looked with delight on the face of his bride. Oh, happy, said he, when our roaming is o'er, we'll dwell in our cottage that stands by the shore. Already in fancy its roof I descry, and the smoke of its heart curling up to the sky. Its garden so green and its fine covered wall, the kind friends are waiting to welcome us all. The children that sport by the old oaken tree are gently the ship glided over the sea. Look down, look down on my 
God, we're saved. Is that not a piece of work? <laughs> I wish you could hear that whole record. Maybe I'll play some more of him later on in this uh, when I, while I'm doing these shows. These old opera houses and music halls were very, very important, especially to our immigrant population. You know, so many, so much opera, so much great music would have perished, would have not found an audience in this country, but for the poor that filled the stalls, that filled the cheap seats in mining towns all over the West and factory towns all over the East and the Midwest. Take you to Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, let's say. A coal miner, Irish immigrant coal miner working underground, goes to Philadelphia to to greet his new bride who's come across from Aaron uh, on a sailing boat and is going to take her back to be his bride in this grimy, dungeon of a town, uh, working underground with his clothes freezing to his body and the, and the air filled with coal smoke, and maybe enough money to go to a concert hall, a little clapboard opera house, uh, to listen to some fine music to elevate the spirit. Can you imagine the effect on those people, that young couple in a concert hall, listening to this? I'll take you home again, Kathleen, across the ocean wild and wide, to where your heart has
have left your cheek. I've watched them fade away and die. Your voice is sad whenever you speak, and tears beneath your loving contemporary concert singer and a student of uh, John McCormick. I've seen Little Opera. I love it. I think back, oh, to the earliest thoughts I'm able to possess, back to arch antiquity, when we began to try to shape the nature, the natural world around us through ritual. How when somebody died, the only change you saw was that they stopped breathing, so breath was terribly important. So the sounds, the first singing was very broad and very loud. We built altars and decorated them elaborately with things at hand. We wore animal skins for costumes. We danced. We, we beat on logs and, and beat things together for, for music. Uh, a, a whole liturgy of all of these elements. I maintain that opera is the, the secular form of our earliest liturgy, because that's the only form where all of those things still take place. And that's one of the reasons probably why it fastens itself uh, to my spirit. I wish I had an opportunity to listen to it more. Well, we're going to have to suspend this for right now. Thank you very, very much for letting me play you some of my favorite music, and we'll see you next week. Yes, this has been your friend UU Todd Phillips, the golden voice of the Great Southwest, and you've been listening to Lofer's Glory, the Hobo Jungle of the Mind.